0: Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny talks with founder and executive director of Space on Ryder Farm Emily Simoness, about space's intentions to support food insecure families, the intersection of the food system and the arts, and the ways that artist residencies at space can bring more people into the food system. Enjoy the show.
1: I've been thinking a lot this week and really over the last couple of months about the power of of art in our lives. My co-founder, Bernard Pollack, and I were planning to open this off-Broadway show that he created um, called uh, Garjana uh, over the summer at La Mama, which is a, a nonprofit theater in in New York City. And we were really excited about it. But for obvious reasons, uh, you know, theater is closed down right now and it's given us some time to reflect on, on the power of what we want uh, and and what we want to create with, with this, this really immersive, fun musical. And so when we are all able to get together again, um, Bernie has some new ideas for it. And I think it'll be a really powerful way of communicating issues around food security and food insecurity, climate change, um, you know, global shocks, like what we're seeing now with COVID-19, uh, and and so many other things that impact the food system and, and really all of our lives. Um, and, and I've been thinking um, about the power of art right now, um, watching the uprisings uh, across the nation and really across the world as people respond to the murders of of uh, George Floyd and others by police. And you know, I was reminded the other day that the the uprisings that we're seeing are not just about the the police brutality; they're about systemic racism. They are about uh, racism that has you know been <laughs> generational that has, you know, sort of infected all of us and, and the need to change that. And so I think, you know, art is not considered essential right now. It's not an essential <laughs> service. And we'll talk about that with our amazing guest, uh, Emily Simines, uh, who works as the executive director of space uh, uh, on Rider Farm. But I I I think it's more essential than ever, and I, I can't wait to hear Emily's views on that. But before I do, I, I want to read two poems by two very different poets that I think sort of speak to the times that we're in, and and give me hope and inspiration, and also the I think the much needed reflection that we all need at this time, and and, and just give sort of inspire the power of art in me. Um, and I also want to mention that the Smithsonian Magazine this week has. Um, uh, you can find it online for free very easily. These amazing murals and art that have been done of 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 George Floyd uh, over the last week and George Floyd as an angel and and you know really powerful you know make me very emotional, very powerful depictions of this man who res- represents so many other people who have who have been impacted by police brutality. So the first um The first poem I'm going to read is The Piece of Wild Things by poet Wendell Berry, who I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, many times and who's a a wonderful speaker and, and storyteller. And so again, it's called The Piece of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And so the, the next poem I'm going to read is a small needful fact by Ross Gay. And um, he is a a gardener and a teacher in Bloomington, Indiana, and um, a very powerful poet. And so he writes, is that Eric Gardner worked for some time for the Parks and Recreation Horticultural Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants, which most likely some of them in all likelihood continue to grow continue to do what such plants do like house and feed and small necessary creatures like being pleasant to touch and smell like converting sunlight into food like making it easier for us to breathe so i want to thank those poets and so many others and artists who are really critical during this time um And I'm so glad that Emily is with us. Again, she works as the executive director of Space on Rider Farm, where she aims to help artists curate their work and and oversees the operations of the farm which is currently providing produce to food insecure families she holds a, a background in theater and i brings a lot of creativity and energy to this space and i'm just really honored that she could be on the this show today uh, so thank you so much for joining me emily yeah thank you so much for having me danielle i'm such a fan of the work y'all are
2: doing and um whoo those poems
1: <laughs> right, I I got chills by reading them, and so I think um they're they're great reminders of this sort of moment we're all going through. I want to get into this very quickly with you though about the I I, I mean I'm not an artist. I really don't have a, I, I, a creative bone in my body other than being a writer, and you know, but I, I feel like um art has always helped me. From you know, my parents were always. Uh, very good about bringing us to museums and having books of, about art around our, our, you know, in our small ranch house in Defiance, Missouri. So I, art was always an important part of my life, and um, I feel like especially during these kinds of times when we're we're grief stricken or we're sick or we're afraid of something or afraid of getting sick, that art is really essential but that's not the case when it comes to paying artists. So I, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's been sort of, um,
2: <laughs> it's been wild to run an institution with one foot in what is deemed an essential business, the farm. Very essential. Right? Foundational, right? Yeah. right? Like shelter, food, that's sort of the gig, right? right. Um, and then one foot in like, It's like barely even phase four. Do you know what I mean? They're like, wait, what? Arts and culture? Uh, you know, totally not essential. And to be, um, you know, having conversations with community members, funders, uh, staff. You know, um, not to mention my artistic uh, folks that are colleagues of mine in the artistic space who don't have. They're not in the food space. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just say that it's a framing at the beginning, which is like the last thing I ever could have expected coming into this year is that the part of my business that, you know, I found it and most comfortable in (laughs) is the part that, you know, given COVID-19 is not um, possible. Right. To do healthfully. Um, You know what I'll say about artists is that they are, and you can say the same thing about farmers. They're so freaking scrappy. You know, like, like constraints, like being able to bump up against constraints is in their DNA. Yeah. And that's not to say that this moment isn't incredibly challenging, right? right. But it is to say that, like, that is, that's the gig, right? So they're, they're made. I don't want to say like artists are made for this moment, but this, this is not um, perhaps an unfamiliar. Like obviously, it's an unfamiliar moment, but but it's uh, in some ways I think a moment that they're that they're um, have made friends with a long time ago. Uh, The other thing I was going to say is that early on in the COVID, um, gosh, it feels like a different lifetime. At the end of March or whatever, we sent a survey around to our artist alumni, so about fourteen hundred people. About you know, have you lost a stable source of income? Have you lost health care? Talk to me about you know are you food insecure and I think something like eighty percent of respondents said that yes they had um, lost uh, you know one gig if not seven gigs wow. um, I think seventy percent uh, were going to lose health insurance if they hadn't already so yeah it's 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 a um, you know and rent in New York City where many artists live ain't cheap so um, I, I am sure that right now in you know, tiny 500 square foot apartments in New York, people are writing the next great fill in the blank, right? Musical, right. Uh, album, novel, play, like, I mean, it, I, can't, I don't want to say I can't wait to see what comes out of this, but I can't wait to see what comes out of this, right?
1: Right. Um,
2: yeah, I don't know if that...
1: Yeah no I've I've been thinking about that a lot too like what are the novels because I'm a really voracious reader what are the novels that are going to come out of this time and you know okay. It, you know, we saw, you know, uh, and we still see, you know, um sort of the effects that nine eleven had or the effects. I lived in New Orleans for a long time. Katrina, there are still books being written about sort of, you know, those two disasters. And I just think you know, we're going to see this 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 happening for a very long time. and it's it yeah. it does give you some hope, though, right? there It gives you something to look forward to, the creativity that a crisis inspires. and and I, I couldn't agree with you more that, artists, uh, you know, of all types, whether we're talking about musicians or writers or singers or, you know, whoever we're talking about, they have a lot in common with farmers because you do have to hustle. You do have to be scrappy. You're always thinking of like the next thing and you have to sort of plan. And, um, you know, I my heart hurts for places like New Orleans, which Depends so much. I mean, people flock to New Orleans because of the art and, and the music and the food, obviously, and all of those things have been affected. I'm wondering if you can describe. So, um, space, you know, you, you do, you do such sort of interesting stuff. And if you could paint a picture for our viewers and listeners of, of this, you know, the, this creative community that you've created and, and, and what it means and what it is. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I'm going to say one more thing about the synergies between artists and farmers and then I absolutely delighted to answer that question. The other thing that I think is really similar is that both artists and farmers have to be invested in and satisfied by process because there is no promise of product. Right. Like, right. Like there just isn't like you have to love the process. You have to like have hope and
1: belief and faith and
2: passion for the process.
1: Yeah, like that danger a little bit, like that you oh, like the risk, right. you know, right? 100%.
2: <laughs> yeah. That has to like be part of your like, you know, you're sort of, I'm doing a gesture for those who are listening, <laughs> uh, sort of in your DNA, right? That that's just like you get, you really, that is, um, anyway, I just wanted to note that in terms yeah. of what we do at space. Okay. So yeah, it's sort of wild. <laughs> so the farm has been in my um, extended family since 1795. Wow. Yeah an eighth generation um, on the land. So um, I grew up in Minneapolis, had heard folklore about this distant farm on the East coast that had been in my family for centuries, never visited. My mom was a family member, never visited, went to college uh, in North Carolina, moved to Brooklyn in 2007. And on a lark, I cold called my fourth cousin once removed Betsy Ryder and said, Hey, I'm related to you. Can I come check out that farm
0: that's been in our family?
2: (laughs) You know, like you do. Uh, And so uh, three things happened. On that day in March of 2009, uh, one, I took Metro North out of Grand Central Terminal and thought I was going to upstate, upstate New York. So I thought I was going like, you know, at least four hours, um, which some people wouldn't even call that upstate. But anyway, um, 85 minutes. So, oh my gosh, it's 85 minutes from the city. Second aha moment. I thought it was going to be an eight acre vegetable plot, but it's 127 acre expanse. Wow. And then third and probably most important is that I'm I opened the door to the 1790s homestead, and it was clear that it hadn't been lived in or taken care of for a very long time. So not what I thought I was going to find. I thought I was going to take a picture, call my mom, say I did it, go back to my life. I was pursuing acting. Went back to the city, couldn't stop thinking about it. Super clear that it needed um, TLC, needed new life, new energy. Other thing that was true in my life is that I was in a community of artists that didn't have time and space to work on their creative pursuits, uh, which like getting back to the earlier point, like that's just true of artists from, from the dawn of time. Right. Um, and so those two needs, the artist's need for time and space and my newly discovered family farms need for resurrection collided. And I pitched to my fourth cousin and new fourth cousins that I just met and. Um, you know, could I start, could I bring up some friends? The initial idea was, can I bring up some artist friends? Can we make capital improvements on the structures? And in exchange, can we get to work on our art? It was 26. They had never met me. (laughs) I never didn't know who the hell I was. Uh, Sure, that sounds fine. Uh, So that was the summer of 2010. We, you know, scrappy artist friends, scraping and painting and spackling buildings and working on art. And it was totally fabulous and great. Then I was like, we should actually do something. We should actually like make a five hundred one c three nonprofit, <laughs> which uh, is a fun, exciting exercise.
1: <laughs> Very fun uh, process, right? <laughs> which you know about?
2: <laughs> <Awesome>. um, yeah, <laughs> stinks. For those of you out there listening, totally stinks. Um, anyway, but so yeah, so. Uh, founded the nonprofit officially in twenty eleven with the mission of supporting artists and activists in their work and contributing to the sustainable sustainability and resourceful preservation of Ryder Farm. Okay, so really, I would say for the first, um, I mean, the first eight years, the focus was really on arts, and we bring up about one hundred and thirty to one hundred and fifty artists a season for one to five week fully subsidized residencies. Um very, you know, artists of all stripes. So a lot of the different mediums that we've referenced earlier in the talk, um, days are grounded in three square meals from the farm. You have to attend the meals. You have to share some of what you've created at the end of your residency, and you have to give back two hours to the farm. So those are the three mandates on your time. The rest is yours to do what you want to do. Obviously you go through rigorous application process, all that jazz before, but so more or less that was the thrust of the programming. Now, Back to my fourth cousin, Betsy, who had been farming the land since 1978. Wow. Um, yeah. And and an ER nurse. So just think about that. Like, yeah. like, yeah, both things. And part of it was that we were going to lose the, you know, we were going to lose the land um, because developers were circling and taxes mm-hmm. were rising in the 70s and she, we needed to get the um, ag abatement. And so she stepped up to the plate. Anyway, she's wow. fantastic, but mm-hmm. wanted to retire, as you would understand, Uh, and there was really no one to take on the farming. And so I said, well, space will do it. Uh, and so we had been from basically 20, I want to say 16, um, supporting Betsy in the back end of the business. So sort of like working on the CSA, being at the market with her. She's one of of the founding farms at the Union Square Green Market. So really sort of like understood the administration. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in 2019, took over the actual running of the farm business. Wow. Um, so this is our second year, uh, this is my second year overseeing a farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, lot to learn, lot to learn, very humbled. I thought starting an artist residency was hard and then I had a year of farming. Um, with the main centerpiece of the farm uh, being a sliding scale CSA. Uh, last year was 150 members, this year we scaled back a tiny bit to 130. Mm-hmm. Um and last year 16% were fully subsidized. And this year we had only planned on 20%. And then COVID happened.
1: Sure.
2: And the last thing I'll say, then I'll stop this monologue, is that I was on a call um with, you know, a bunch of local nonprofits working around issues of food insecurity. And um one cited that they had seen a six hundred percent increase in calls around food insecurity. And I got the call and said to the team, we have to do more. So we're um, giving away 50% of the veggies. um, So 65 families for 18 weeks. Um, So amidst all this darkness, um, it has been a bright spot to work on that.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. I can't believe it's your only, your second year. So just to make this clear, you had no farming experience before you went into this.
2: No, I mean, like, I've lived on Ryder farm for the last nine years and I'm like, and I'm related to Betsy. And so I've like, you know,
1: you learn some things, but that's a lot to take on. And then COVID, I mean, yeah. those are just a lot. That's a lot. to, And to combine that with, you know, the other things you do to support artists. Um, right. I, I'm interested when you look at the applications of of the, the folks who are applying and I bet you get more applications than you know what to do with. Are you looking for folks who are, you know, artists plus, you know, f- have farming experience or d- does it matter to you? It's a great
2: question. Yeah, we got about fourteen hundred applications this year for what we thought were going to be one hundred and fifty slots. Obviously, we're not holding residencies right now because people aren't convening in groups of ten. <laughs> um, we, you know, so so first, we give fifty percent of our residencies to people of color and other underrepresented voices. So that's a huge one of our mandates. Um, obviously, looking for artistic merit, and I will say that folks who can speak specifically. You can make art anywhere, right? Like people, again, getting back to the earlier point, like so scrappy. Like you can make art in a closet. Right. So, you know, one of the questions uh, intentionally on the application is why Rider Farm, right? And it's, and you know, I've read so many applications, most about, well, I I like to get out of the city. Well, yes, everybody likes to get out of the city. So, really though, like rigorously interrogate why on a farm. Why is that interesting, right? Right. Um, And I will say, I don't know how intentional it is, but we we have a good number of folks in residents who either are writing about the natural world, have like um, a history, you know, mm-hmm. with farming, with agriculture, with um, you know, who, who are connoisseurs of Wendell Berry. No, but like you know, they're sure. they're they are deliberate about wanting to be on the farm making art because it is part of what they are interested in and in creating.
1: That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. And yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to this point, Bernie and I think about this a lot. How do you get different, you know, we're, we're all sort of stuck in our silos in the food and agriculture movement. And, and, yeah. you know, one of our, our, you know, the one of the parts of our mission is really to break down those silos and it's not just, you know, getting economists to talk to, you know, farmers, it's breaking down the system so that we can all sort of appreciate the value and beauty and joy and importance of food and and the arts community, you know, Bernie has always thought is such an obvious, you know, sort of a partner in all of this because of the work that you do and and the creativity that's involved and the like you said before the similarity of farmers to artists in terms of being able to take risks and and try and fail and you know and fail again and try again, you know what I mean and and I think it's that experimentation that, that, you know, is, is, is part of all of this. And, and, you know, and scrappy nonprofits like yours and like mine also have that sort of, you know, living on the edge kind of, kind of mentality that I think brings the, we have this ability to pivot. We have this ability to be creative in times of need that, you know, bigger institutions don't. And I think all of those things sort of combined really make a difference.
2: Huge. I mean, like, I was so grateful that I was in a position where I could pivot and say, like, I know we said 20%, but we're going to do 50%. And yes, that does mean we have to fundraise more in a time when everyone's telling you it's a bad time to fundraise. Don't you know what I mean? Like, like there's a global pandemic and now there's a revolution, which thank God, but time, yes. thank God, you know, like seriously, like, there. you know, thank God it's arrived. Um, And perhaps like that was, um, you know, not the most conservative decision, right. To, to say we're going to go in that direction, but like there wasn't another decision to make. Right. In my opinion. And, and people answered the call. I mean, we had to raise, um, well, the goal is a hundred thousand for that initiative. And we've done, I think like 94, but 40% of the donations are for $50 or less.
1: Wow.
2: Like, it's amazing. It's amazing because people want to help, you know? And I think about colleagues of mine who are at much bigger institutions that are so, I mean, to move their left arm is like five years, do you know? Um, And, you know, as someone who's newer to the scene, I'm like, ooh, how could I not have that happen? Um, Because I would never want to be in a position where... I mean, obviously we can't answer every call, right? Like it's a really, particularly now it feels like, wow, oh God, you look left and there's, I mean, it's really challenging. And it's incumbent, I think, upon nonprofits who are in a position of service to like meet the needs where they can responsibly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have felt like, Last year, I was like, I think I even said to your uh, co-founder, Bernard, I was like, farming is so hard. I mean, I was so humbled, like humble. Sure. And I thought 2020 was going to be a new page, you know, that, and then COVID happens. But I was so grateful that I, that I could get up in the morning and work on something that was deemed essential. Like, Absolutely. oh, my God. Like, thank God.
1: Oh, yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. Um, it, You know, I, I want to make sure that people know where to donate. Could you give yeah. out that website? Yeah,
2: it's www.space, like outer space, on rider, like the truck, farm.org. So www.s-p-a-c-e-o-n-r-y-d-e-r-f-a-r-m.org.
1: And just to be clear, is this the friend of the Harvest Fund? Or is yes, the right? friend of the Harvest Fund. Friend yeah. of the Harvest Fund. Um, and one of the questions I had for you about it is you know, it's, uh, we don't know how long this crisis is going to go on. And I know fundraising is hard, but is it something that you would consider doing next year as oh, well? Oh,
2: absolutely. I mean, one of the pledges that we made last year was that we weren't going to take away the subsidy after we gave it to families. So it wasn't like, you get it this year, but then you're going to take it away. Like, that's not the, the point, is to like build. Um, a sustainable source of food for folks who otherwise would not have it, right? So, you know, was it my plan going into twenty twenty one that that we would be doing fifty percent? No, but we will be doing fifty percent, and the first folks that we will go to are the folks who, you know, already had the resource. You know, do you would you like to build upon that? So,
1: yeah. That's great. And what has been the reaction from the the folks who are recipients, these clients of yours who are recipients of, of, of the produce?
2: In Brewster, which is close to the farm is a pretty large Guatemalan population. Um, So a lot are actually Spanish speaking. And I must say, I'm not Spanish speaking, which I need to be. Um, However, um, and I will say that when I first introduced the idea of the CSA to an ESL class in downtown Brewster, someone's translating for me, um, you know, I think the, the concept of CSA is hard if it's being told to you in the language you understand, like in the language that is your first, right? Like it's, it's like, Ooh, it does not translate well. Yeah. (laughs) No. So trying to explain it, um, folks first thought that I was asking them to work on the farm. Um, Um, and then it was really a trust building exercise. I mean, um, there's a lot of xenophobia in Brewster. There's an ice presence. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: People are afraid to give out their information, I'm sure. That's right.
2: So it was all, it was a, I was very incredibly grateful to Norma Pereira, who's a local organizer, who's on our, since has become a member of Spaces Advisory Board and really was a liaison um, in helping to build that trust. Um, I will say that by the end of the 18 weeks, right? So after we had really worked to show up and be um, specific and intentional and um kind yeah. um the largely um english as a second la- largely english as a second language members asked if they could cook us um the staff and the farmers uh, a dinner in uh the 1795 homestead um so they brought brought a bunch of guatemalan dishes and cooked for the farmers and a lot of them got up and testified in spanish about the experience and again i don't speak spanish but the feeling you know, the intention I could understand. And it was incredibly moving. Um, And, you know, my ambition is, you know, we're in an interesting place geographically, the farm. We're in the midst of really on the Westchester-Putnam border. And Putnam is pretty economically depressed and Westchester is very affluent. Yeah. And just like our artist table, you try to bring more in different voices and have it really be heterogeneous. I want that to be the CSA table as well. Like, I really want to say, like, that is that for me was the, why the sliding scale was designed. Right. Is it's like, no, you're all at the table. And like, how can we, how can we um, continue to sort of like, not necessarily make the table, like I guess make the table bigger, but like, how is it as inclusive as possible?
1: Yeah. And Um, more diverse, which all all of that, all of those ingredients (laughs) make it better, you know? No. And like richer and more interesting, you know,
2: like I hadn't eaten a lot of those dishes and they were amazing uh so yeah that long story longer the the um the response has been really positive but it has not been necessarily like happened in a day you know right. I mean like y- this takes time and I think like the work is not ever done so I'm excited to like roll up my sleeves and meet these new families and like see you know where the conversations take us
1: That's awesome. That really resonates with me because of a conversation we had yesterday with a young nutrition act. Who, you know, just finished undergrad. And she's been working with communities around what she calls nutrition justice. And she's oh. like, it's it's relationship building. And she's like, you can't just go in and tell people what to eat or tell them, you know, this recovered food from a campus dining service or whatever. It, you know, you should eat it. You have to build that relationship. And I think that's so powerful. The relationship building. And it just oh. makes me, you know, your, your description of what the CSA table should look like. Just this makes me think that more artists should be farmers because it was said <laughs> so beautifully, you know what I mean? And so um, we have, we have a question. Um, so it's from someone named Molly as a, uh, as an artist who spent time in um, the wolf world after college, your project on writer farm is a great development of what other interns and myself were seeking. I wish you a success in continuing space. So oh, that's you, really Molly. great. Appreciate
2: that. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I don't have, Because I haven't been like, I wasn't trained as a farmer, (laughs) not dissimilar from like, I wasn't trained as a nonprofit leader. (laughs) I guess my style is to sort of just like, get in there and do it. Um, And obviously it has not been all sunshine and roses, but um, I do think that like so much of this stuff is fundamental, like building relationships with people, asking them what they need coming to their neighborhood, you know, like, like it, 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 it listening Listening, listening. We don't listen enough. I think like obviously it wouldn't, if we all listened more, I don't think everything would be solved, but I think so much would be better.
1: Yeah. I, again, I mean, I just, uh, all of that resonates so deeply with me. I don't know if you uh, know this from, from listening to your conversations with Bernie, uh, my co-founder, but when we, we spent a lot of time uh, on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa and what we tried to do was just listen to folks instead of like interrogating them or, to, you know, our, our job was not to tell people what to do. It was to observe what was happening around agricultural innovation. And just by listening and like asking fewer questions, um, you know, you, you get a lot more out of these conversations. You, you, you have an actual dialogue and you have, you know, that that tr- you you start building that trust because yeah. people are very open. Oh, you just want to listen to what I'm doing? You don't <laughs> want to tell me how to do it? Because that's what most white people who come here tell us what to do. Okay. And I think that that's right. that idea of asking communities what they want and need is, is you know, it's become a fundamental shift in in both international development and domestic development that you can't say, oh, I'm going to solve your problem. here Here are the tools to do it It's, it's figuring out, you know, through all of this participatory, um, research and, and, and active listening what those communities actually want and what, you know, and I'm sure, w- you know, I know CSAs who work very closely with, um, you know, communities from El Salvador and elsewhere. And so they'll ask them, like, what do you want us to grow? Like, what do, what do you, you know, how can we grow more uh, of the greens that you used at home or th- those kinds yeah. of things? And it's a really sort of mutually beneficial, you know, process. And it, it's, it just makes me again, it's just something so wonderful that when you, you bring people together, you can have more of that interaction.
2: Yeah. Yes. And it reminds me too. So we're sending out our first CSA email about next week's pickup because it's our first pickup and talking to, um, the communications team. And, you know, we used to do one whole thing in Spanish and one whole thing in English. And it was like 7,000 emails and it was bound to get messed up and all things. And Creative Director just said, why don't we just have the Spanish next to the English? Like, why don't we just have one side be English and one side be Spanish? And like we don't need to like even say, just so you know, it'll be self-evident that some folks's first language is English and some folks' first language is Spanish. And like that is that is a like, and we're gonna do it all together. And like you're all gonna get the same information. You know, like there isn't, and we're not going to like underline it for you that like we're doing a good thing, you know, like (laughs) it's like, these are the members of the CSA and some of them speak this language and some of them speak that. And so we're going to send one email that has both languages. That's more powerful. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I was like, oh God, you know, overthinking it. And then I was just like, yeah, anyway, I I could go on, but I think, yeah, I think Mm -hmm. it's like, how do we, how do we just be more inclusive? Without right. patting ourselves on the back and showing everyone how inclusive we are.
1: Do you know? Oh, my you know? God. I love that statement. I think, yeah, the, I mean, I think so much of like what we've seen this week is like, oh, you know, people patting themselves on the back for what, you know, they've done nothing. They've been part of the problem yeah, and recognizing right. that and and being able to get through that and just be uh, you know, a good ally to be helpful when needed. Those are the kinds of things, and and that we need more of. It, and obviously, the listening. I, I, I'm interested in your advice to you know artists um, using their their own platforms, whether they're you know um, uh, fellows on your farm or 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 uh, just you know working in the world. How could, they can use their own platforms to become more engaged in food and agriculture and sort of this wider issue of equity and equality and accessibility and affordability of food. Yeah. Easy question, right?
2: You no, know, I'm just, I mean, I was having a conversation yesterday with some scenic designers because, you know, all the theaters in New York are not being used. Right. Uh, and there's about to be a bunch of empty storefronts, right? Like we're going to have a lot of real estate with nothing in it. Yeah. Um, And so these amazing scenic designers were like, you know, is there an opportunity to put like urban farms in some of these theaters? And I was like, yeah, totally. Like, yes, a thousand percent. Like, and you know, maybe farms could pair with one theater. And, you know, we were just sort of having this whole brainstorm. And I think each person on the call said like, gosh, I really hope the learning from this moment sticks with this. Like I hope that like people's new understanding of food chain or food supply, sorry, supply chain, I'm so tired, issues, you know, like, like they're like, oh, get to know your farm, like the local, all of the things that were like groovy and amazing and oh, so bourgeois and are now like just necessary, right? Right. No, 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 no. Like you actually like, this is how you're going to get your food, right? right? (laughs) Like, how can we take that learning? Uh Uh-huh forward right because now it's like it's just it's been necessary like in order for me to to get what I have needed in the way of food for the last you know it's three months now mm-hmm. I've had to edge you know I I obviously because I've been a farmer now for two years I've known about these things but friends of mine have had to like educate themselves right mm-hmm. um so I think the first thing is like and I don't know the answer but a lot of the conversations I'm having whether it's about racial justice or um Food insecurity, um, socioeconomic disparity, is like how do we uh, carry these learnings mm-hmm. and and transform them into action? Because I think if we move too quickly out of this moment, we'll just kind of coast back into the right. pretty deadly systems of oppression in all of the directions that are pretty formidable, right? Um, so that's not an answer. It's more of a musing on what you said I will say that in the artist community folks are talking about food in a way that I've never heard people talk about food Mm -hmm. that that is something I will say is like it yeah it just hasn't been I mean not to say it's not like important people love food people love you know um sort of a platitude but I think the education around it and the investigation of it And the participation in it um, has been an essential tool for survival, right? Um, And so I know that conversations are happening, and that is a step in the right direction. Whether that will stick, who knows?
1: Well, I think it gets back to what we, we discussed at the outset of this, that I think artists and uh, can be important in helping us remember the learnings, right? So that we don't go back to the kind of awful normal that we didn't know was so awful before. That that there's, you know, that that through their their art form, whatever it is, whether it's music or these amazing murals that I was talking about earlier, that it, it creates the the inability to go back, right? Because we have that, and we have them telling us that, you know, this is unacceptable and here's sort of a new vision for the world.
2: Yeah. I mean, storytelling, right? It's like as old, it's as, as old as it gets. Um, and like I said, I think that the art that is currently being made in this moment today, the 5th of June right. is amazing. Like, I think, I think like it, whatever's being incubated right now, like it's going to, it's going to remind us and hopefully in some ways hold us accountable collectively. Yeah. Like that's what I think about, like, and you know, when we can gather again. So that's also the piece of it, right. Is like so much of at least theater, which is my background is about gathering and like, what do you do when you can't gather? So that for me, that piece of it remains to be seen. Like,
1: what are you thinking, though? I mean, Bernie's you know a million phone calls a day trying to think through you know how how you know w- whenever it is, if it's six months from now or eighteen months from now, what theater will look like? and I, I'm just wondering what you're envisioning. You know it's interesting.
2: I mean, I have so many colleagues doing different things. Some are like, I'm not interested in Zoom for theater. I'm not doing it. we're not doing it. We're gonna postpone it indefinitely, right? There are some folks who are talking about the minute that phase, I think theater is phase four in New York. um, We're going to do, you know, we're going to take out a fourth of the seats or a fifth or a half of the seats and, you know, whatever. Um, There are, I, I guess I stopped myself because most people are sort of like the pause button is on, right? Like it's like a real pause and even if all butts are in the seats, theater is still a, not exactly a money-making
1: right. phrase. Right. Like yeah. the restaurant industry. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I will also say like, personally, I go to the theater to have an experience. Like you're in the theater and yeah. Bernie's in the theater. And my husband's in the theater and we're all watching the same thing. like, it's the reason I go to the theater and choose it oftentimes over a film because I want to, or over Netflix. Cause I want to collectively. Right. Um, view and have catharsis, et cetera. Um, what do I think? I think there'll be less theaters, unfortunately. Um, I think folks are going to have a lot of time to figure out how to make the theater more sustainable. right? Right. Because like, it was already pretty unsustainable and, um, had, you know, I can talk as like a person running a predominantly white institution, like huge racial inequities in terms of not just who's on stage or who's being produced, but the um, staffs of theaters. Right. So I think it's a huge moment of reflection. I hope what we all see, and I'm saying this myself too, is a more racially diverse um, group of people, both making it and supporting it. I mean, it's going to be really good too, because <laughs> right, right. people. I mean, the I think about the work that got canceled this spring, and like just those mm-hmm. shows alone, I think about, like, including yours at wasn't it? Was it La Mama? Right? Yeah. Is that what you said at the beginning? Yeah. Like, I think about the amount of theater that was canceled, plus anywhere from like you said, six months to eighteen months worth of incubation. I mean, it's going to be freaking fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be like gangbusters and
1: people uh, will be craving it right <laughs> totally and I
2: think like that that first time back in the theater once people actually feel safe to be back I mean it's going to be I can't even I don't have words I get goosebumps you know I think it'll be um it'll probably be post word it probably won't have a word that could um adequately describe it um but I do think that there'll be less like I think just like every industry I don't want to say every industry, but like. This is not a good moment for the theater.
1: No, no, it certainly isn't. But I, like you said before, because there's such an incubation period and all the art that's being created and all the scripts oh. that I can't imagine that are being written right now, you know, they're going to be phenomenal because people haven't had this, you know, time of reflection that you mentioned. And, you know, they're still trying to survive. Right. And that's why we need, you know, the federal government to step up to the plate and realize, the essentialness of not only food workers, but people who are creative folks who who need to be supported during this time and things like paycheck protection programs and, you know, yeah. a, live, a universal living wage. These are all the things that could really keep artists in business in during this time. But, you know, that's I, it remains to be seen if we'll get there.
2: Yeah, it's um it really has sort of laid bare what we all knew. Um, but yeah, $1,200 check doesn't really do it. Um, you know, so many of these artists that I know are gig artists, right? right. They're, they're folks who job in, you know, I mean, my husband's one of those people, like it's not, you know, unemployment is not unfamiliar to these people because they're gig, but this kind of like unknowable, um, amount of time between now and whenever we convene again is, you know, it's, it's formidable, but I, I do think that if we really use this pause, which is nothing we can do about it, to really examine our institutions and really examine um, the power structures, like we truly do have an opportunity that would not have happened otherwise. Like, absolutely, I wasn't going to take four months off, you know, I mean, I'm not taking four months off, but like, that was right. not in the cards for any of us, Right. Right.
1: right. No, we all had plans. (laughs) We were busy. Not that I'm not busy now, but it's it's a different kind of busy, you know?
2: Yeah. And like, what are we doing with the time? Like, what is this, you know, what sort of, how are we holding ourselves accountable for when we can do the work again, you know?
1: Absolutely. And that has like been the theme of, of this podcast slash live cast for the last, you know, 85 days, I've lost count. I don't know. You know, like how do we not go back to the way things were? How do we transform and create and build and 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 think about what was wrong and fix it and 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 come back stronger than ever? So I, I think, you know, that's really lovely that you're you're also thinking about that in the arts community. It just speaks to the strength of of those two, those these two communities really being part of one another i also think it shows the interconnectedness right is it's like we're all having the same conversation
2: right right i mean it's nuanced right Right. like it's a bit nuanced and different but like everyone's bleary eyed uh devastated slash hopeful slash any adjective possible Uh, and i think if anything this like you said 85 87 who knows how many freaking days um, (laughs) there is a fundamental humanity that we're that we're all uh, you know we're all living a, a shared somewhat shared experience here of wow the bottom fell out the bottom there is no ground um and I think that if individuals and institutions each hold themselves accountable and that ripples out like, by sheer numbers, we should be able to solve all of America's problems.
1: right? All of the world's I, problems, I too. No. I know and boat. Oh my God, yes, please, everyone, most important boat. thing you can do. You
2: nothing else for the rest of 2020.
1: Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I want to make sure people have your um, website again. It's spaceonwriter with a Y, farm.org, spaceonwriterfarm.org. We'll have that available on our website and on our social media. My last question for you, Emily, is who is inspiring you the most right now?
2: Uh, I watched Who is inspiring me the most today? Well, this has been a very inspiring conversation. And (laughs) Brian Stevenson, uh, who wrote Just Mercy, um, I watched his TED talk this morning, which I want to pull up the name of it because we need to talk about it. We need to talk about an injustice. Brian Stevenson.
1: Great. Okay.
2: Um, 24 minutes. If you have 24 minutes, which you probably do, someone in the next week, I (laughs) highly recommend it. Um, I just think we can't. If we're not going to have this reckoning now, I don't think we're going to get another opportunity to have this reckoning. And I think like we can't continue, I don't want to say we. I'm going to say I. I can't continue to know to know on some level about the incredible disparity between what it means to be white in America and what it means to be a person of color, specifically black in America and not have like, I need to, that needs to be a rigorous interrogation for me. And there needs to be an accountability for me every day. And I think um, we just, we, I don't think we're going to get a shot at this again and not, not in our life. I just don't think it, I don't think revolutions come (laughs) around. I think they only come around every, you know, (laughs) um, but I really mean that. I think like it's such an opportunity. It's such an opportunity, and I think um, the more that I can educate myself and provide resources to myself and my staff and my family, um, uh, and and not look away um, and right. and have the harder conversations, and I think that I I need to do a better job of that, and I think that. I'm finding inspiration and in, in learning from folks who um, it's, you know, it's part of their, it has been part of their life's work from the beginning. And I right. think it, yeah, so I'm sort of rambling, but I think you get the gist.
1: You, you weren't rambling. That was beautiful <laughs> and such great advice for us all. And You have really inspired me today and I kind of needed it. So I I just want to thank you for joining me. You're incredible. I can't wait to visit the farm when I am able. (laughs) Um, A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast at Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. And I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Mark Zingring from the Nature Conservancy. Emily, I adore you. Thank you for everything such fun so lovely talking have a great weekend you too stay well
2: bye bye
0: thanks so much for listening to food talk with danny nierenberg please rate review subscribe and share the podcast make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system